I'm Coolio Von Doritoberg, bringing you episode one of Planet of the Dorito Cats. That's not actually what it's called. Planet of the Meerkats. Hi, I'm Dave. And I'm Neil. We're from the Planet of the Meerkats. And we're going to take you back to the turn of the century. So we've each selected three topics for discussion. <laughs> I don't know what Neil chose, and Neil doesn't know what I chose, so we're going in blind. All right, what's our first What's our first topic today, Dave? I have selected the movie classic film leprechaun in the hood <laughs> okay so let me explain this movie to you for a minute the movie stars obviously warwick davis as the leprechaun but the 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 protagonist of the movie is played by ice t uh he plays a a character named mac daddy onassis who's a, a struggling a struggling hip-hop artist and he gets a magic flute and this magic flute makes him super popular but also subjects him to the the wrath of the leprechaun is there in anyone else in history that became more popular after they began to play the flute <laughs> well i mean ice t's career is kind of defied odds anyways right yeah who would have thought in in 1992 that he would go on to be famous for playing a cop i mean didn't he have a song called cop killer yeah <laughs> wait so tell me more tell me more about about uh this movie because i i really need you to set the scene here for me to, to be able to respond to this properly so first of all this movie is the least scary movie you've ever seen and the rap set around uh the flute the flute playing is just as odd as you would expect it to be and the whole time you're thinking this does not sound like music anybody would listen to by choice I mean, if you had said, though, like, like, check this out, there's going to be this metal band and there's going to be a bagpipe player in it. And then also the lyrical lyrical content is going to be about child abuse. No one would have been they, people would be like, no, no, I don't think so. But corn existed. Let's talk about corn for a second, because I think they're they're a very interesting band. They were a bit gimmicky. Uh, obviously, I think Jonathan Davis is the lead singer of Korn, his his voice was pretty uh, distinct in a way that I think was almost gimmicky. What actually made it really unique, which was that that bass guitar, like, not, I don't feel like anything has ever sounded like that before. Yeah, it was really growling, kind of low and deep and uh, dramatic. It sounded like the strings were like not actually attached to the guitar. I'm trying to think back. So they, they did a song with Ice Cube, who in recent years has become notable for endorsing Donald Trump for president. Wait, did he really? Did he actually endorse Trump? I miss that. He did. He, he endorsed him on the theory that Trump has lots of money and money is good in rap. And so money and so Trump should be endorsed. You know, I think his endorsement was even more important than the Kanye endorsement because, you know, Ice Cube is still very relevant. I kind of feel like rich people are rich people, it's like especially rich men. And, and just because someone was once anti-authority, he wasn't rich when he wrote all of his big hits, was he? I mean, most of the stuff that Ice Cube did that was super, super popular. I mean, he probably was rich by the mid-90s, but he wasn't like rich, rich like he is now after his acting career took off. So you can't hold an ultra-rich man to the same standard as a like, 20-year-old kid who like, you know, came out of you know, hard upbringing. I read an article the other day. Actually, it was an interview with Ice-T. Not Ice Cube, Ice-T. Um, who I'm pretty sure Ice Cube, excuse me, Ice T did not endorse Donald Trump. So we don't, I don't want to make that distinction. These are the two frozen stars of the late 90s. Ice T was talking about how his son was getting into rap and was rapping about being on the street. And he was like, You don't know what the street is, man. 
you get dropped off in a Bentley at school every day. What do you? <laughs> That's like the opposite of street. I'm going to drop my first topic on you. Okay. Abercrombie and Fitch. Oh, crap. I remember they got really popular because there was a, a song and a guy was singing about how he liked his girls to wear Abercrombie and Fitch. And I can't remember who, who, who made the song. But remember, you'd go to the mall and there'd be like a, like a two-story mural of a naked person. <laughs> well, so what I think is interesting about Abercrombie and Fitch is as much as they became like a youth brand at, at the turn of the century and were popular with the kids and stuff and their clothes were sort of anti-utilitarian, you would buy them already sort of beaten up and ripped and stuff. Uh, they got famous back like a century before because they were wore by Teddy Roosevelt when he would go on safari. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Damn, uh, good knowledge. Now that, that would have actually like attracted me to the store more if I was walking along and there was a big statue of Teddy Roosevelt wearing wearing some khakis. <laughs> Teddy Teddy Roosevelt in some some low cut boot jeans. Holding an elephant gun and like twiddling his mustache. When he was president, he went on safari and was missing for like two weeks. That's incredible. I think what's I think what's kind of amazing is Abercrombie ever existed because nowadays like you know you look at like the fashion that's popular and it's definitely 90s inspired, but it was not that part of the 90s. It was like High high waisted mom mom cut, kind of like the early early nineties. Anything that any cast member from Seinfeld wore is super popular. Now I want to see I want to see Jinko jeans come back. Oh, dude! I think I think there. I wish I had kept mine, but like I think that there's there's going to be a moment. Y your jeans would be so big that you all of the scum of the streets would be like have seeped up your leg. And like that was just you were cool with that. You're like, it's fine. It's like I'm wearing a mop. Um, is it my turn to drop one? Okay, Barry Bonds, the big man. Oh man, do you remember that summer? I think it was 1993 when he signed with the Giants. So this is like well before the turn of the century. But the Giants were going to move to to Tampa Bay, and then all of a sudden, in the span of a couple of weeks, it, it seemed like that didn't happen. And then Barry Bonds was on the team, and it was like we're going to win so many World Series. So pumped. Never would I have thought that it ended up, the story ended up the way that it actually did. Looking back on it now, it was interesting. I feel, feel like baseball is kind of boring now because there aren't really any stars of that size that are doing as many shady things as Barry Bonds did. Well, and we were we were both Giants fans. That was the era where you would watch a ball game and it would just be, you know, how many home runs is Barry Bonds going to hit today? Will it be enough to win the game? And I think his star power was so high that the team had a difficult time sort of filling out the rest of the roster with a really solid team. You know, they were okay. They had some, they had some good good players on the team, but that was the reason why they didn't win a World Series in the Bonds era. To your point, you know, Bonds did everything humanly possible to get them there. It's a team sport. You can't you can't put it all on the back of just one player. Although in in, the, in 2014, they they did they pretty much did that when uh, Madison Bumgarner. Seemingly won every game of the postseason. <laughs> so the Giants, I guess, have a history of putting it all on the back of one player. You know what, though, he had he had a solid team backing him, though. Uh, I mean, he he was definitely was the superstar of that series and that that season. But you know, the rest of the team, Bruce Bochy was really skilled at building a team out of a lot of people you hadn't heard of. Like he didn't just go like the Yankees does and and pull a bunch of stars out of other teams and and. You know, he, he built, built it from the ground up. 
You know, it's like growing up as a Giants fan, they always had, at least from the mid 80s onward, it felt homegrown. It felt like they had scrappy players like Clark and Thompson, and Kevin Mitchell, like like they they had a they had a team that was exciting and it felt like a team. And you had you had a, a players with different skills who kind of came together. And then when Bonds came, you know, it was like this is this is person has otherworldly skills. And like this is a once I think you knew watching him even before the steroid stuff that he was a once in a lifetime sort of player. But yeah, I think you're right. Like nowhere, nowhere during the entire run of the of the like Bonds, the high point of the Bonds era, did you ever feel like excitement about the team? And then you know, after Bonds, the farm system was was you know pretty bare, and there wasn't a lot of hope. And that, that's kind of what made that run from 2010 to 2014 so special. Is is feeling. What's like Bonds was the elephant in the room. And after he left, it, it felt like we may never find success again. And then all of a sudden we did. And we had like a really amazing team that felt like our own. Yeah, I think I would agree with that. You know, Bonds was really the tip of the iceberg on that spurt of where you would have great players. And you had, you know, Bonds and he was followed by McGuire and Sosa who juiced and they got huge and were able to hit home runs like a freaking Greek God. Uh, but it was obviously that obvious that it wasn't natural talent at that point. And it was a shame because I think, you know, all three of those examples I gave were fantastic players and would have secured their, their spot in, you know, the annals of baseball and the hall of fame, but you know, they have that asterisk next to their name forevermore. All right. Next topic, stuffed crust pizza. Oh, now I want some stuffed crust pizza, man. So to give the the listeners some background, Neil and I both worked at Pizza Hut through some of our college years. I was an expert at making stuffed crust pizza, which essentially is just pizza with some string cheese shoved into the crust. But that was that was good good stuff. Did Pizza Hut teach you anything valuable about life? You know, actually, I have a one of my formative manu- management experiences at Pizza Hut. I uh, I was young. I was I just turned eighteen, and I was a shift manager. And I came in, and I was just I thought I was on a roll. I was ordering people around. You know, you do this, you do that, and I thought everything was going great. And eventually, one of the drivers came over and was like, "Dude, quit being an asshole." <laughs> and uh, you know, I I think that's something that I still think about to this day. Uh, you know, I manage a lot a lot more people now, and. Uh, you have to be really cognizant of how the team is responding to what you're doing, um, how you give your directions and you have to let people, you know, use their own heads and make decisions, you know, and trust, trust their judgment. Um, it's not the job of the manager to make decisions for everybody. And wow. I was not expecting like that level of insight to come out of <laughs> a topic about stuffed crust pizza, but I, I feel like that, that really, that moved me, Dave, that moved me. I, I, you know what though? I also learned to cuss at Pizza Hut. That place was like a freaking Navy ship. I don't know if you like made a conscious decision to go into management, but you were my manager at Pizza Hut. And then later we went and we worked at Mervin's together and you were my manager there as well. Um, and I feel like it, in both of those cases, um, I probably did not perform up to your expectations of me. And we were friends, so it's not like you were going to be a dick to me or anything like that. But like, I didn't take it very seriously at times. That was the thing. I didn't take it very seriously, too. The, I mean, I think in both those cases, you were in a job that was 
really far below your ability. And so it wasn't like if you didn't perform at 100%, you were getting the job done. <laughs> I, where I was at was like, I'm in it for the free pizza at the end of the night. But I want to ask you one more important question about Pizza Hut um, and pe just pizza in general. Uh, tell us why it is important not to center load. <laughs> I wouldn't pizza. know because I center loaded all the time and got chewed out by my manager. <laughs> but you under you understood the theme. Yeah, I mean, you weren't supposed to center load because then you'd have this like soggy bit of nonsense in the middle of the pizza that was supposed to where it was be supposed to be kind of light and fluffy, and you're supposed to load the toppings around the edge of the interior of the pizza, which is where you're holding it. Um, so I got it in theory, but I mean, it's, it's so much easier just to toss that shit in the middle and spread it out. Mm -hmm. So I went on after pizza had to work at round table and I don't think it's any great surprise or a uh, topic of controversy to say that round table is better pizza than pizza hut. That, that, that is, that is an indisputable fact. So just on the merits of the pizza alone, I look at the roundtable job and I'm like, uh, I didn't really have any friends there, but you know, <laughs> pizza was better. But now I feel like if I had known then, then what I know now about pizza, you don't even really need toppings. I mean, it's true, right? You get the right, right amount of like oil and some cheese and maybe just a sprinkling of toppings. Like it's not about quantity. Our Christmas um, dinner this year is we're all going to make our own personal pizzas and That'll be our Christmas dinner instead of having a big thing with like a turkey or something. So this has been really interesting. I, I I'm I'm happy to hear you say that because I I feel like we've all admitted this year that turkey is like kind of sucks and that like <laughs> if we if we had the choice we would all make something different. <laughs> like we're gonna make tacos. So yeah. Like, <laughs> well, there was like a glut of turkeys. And I, if I were the turkey industry, I would just let those suckers go yeah. and wreak havoc in the cities. Um, <laughs> it's revenge for us not eating their turkeys this year. Okay, so in Escondido, do you have wild roving bands of turkeys that terrorize people? Um, you know, the, the we have wild roving bands of a lot. We do, I haven't seen turkeys, but uh, Escondido is a weird town because it's not your typical... And for those who don't know, I live in Escondido, which is just north of San Diego. Uh, it's sort of this weird shaped town that's wedged in between some mountains. And so it doesn't really conform to the city square type plan. And it just kind of goes off in every direction. And so there's, a, there is a lot of wildlife that goes wandering. Uh, we can't let our cat be, cat be an outside cat because he will be eaten by a, a mountain lion or a coyote. Um, and we've seen coyotes just, you know, tro trolling down our street, um, I guess, looking for, for small small dogs to eat or something. We have a, a gang of turkey. Tur we call <laughs> turkeys. I call them the Berkeley turkeys. <laughs> but the like they usually hang out at the Shell station for some reason. Like uh, I guess maybe someone feeds them Doritos. But you'll just like randomly you'll be like, all right, I guess in the middle of this busy street we're gonna stop because the turkeys are just right in the middle of the street and they're not scattering with the traffic. They're just like sitting there. They don't they don't care. Oh yeah. They they know they own the road. Like, You're going to wait for us. They're like the moose of birds. <laughs> <laughs> the biggest wildlife like uh, revelation here lately is that apparently there's someone in the neighborhood that owns like a wolf or like a like I think it's like a half wolf, <laughs> like an actual wolf. Well, you know, wolves are is as menacing as coyotes are. I'm pretty confident that if like two coyotes came running at me, I could fend them off. I don't think so with a wolf. All right, Dave. What's your third topic? 
Rick Olay. Oh God, you did Rick Olay. I don't know anything about Rick Olay because you didn't even play a big part in the movie. Well, there's really nothing to know about Rick Olay. I think he was a, a, a phenomenon with the the episode one Star Wars episode one, um, and he was one of the first action figures they released for the movie. So everybody got his action figure and was like, "Oh shit, you know this guy's going to be cool, like you know New Han Solo or something." And there were a couple characters like that, like Captain uh, Panaka and uh, Ori Mandel, <laughs> and. You know, they released these action figures and everybody bought them. And then they went and saw the movie. They're like, this guy has one line and it's not even a good line. Where do you stand on on uh, episode one? I, you know, I, I, I was reading a the synopsis of all the different you know spinoffs that Disney Plus is going to be releasing. I just saw a note that said that Hayden Christensen is going to come back as Darth Vader in the Obi-Wan Kenobi series. And it, it got me thinking a lot about the prequels. So I would love to hear you reassess episode one uh 20 years out so i'll say when it first came out i really liked it and i remember you me and jason would go see it we probably saw it five or six times it'd be like we're bored yeah let's go see star wars and that it was just sort of the novelty and the fun of the fact that there was star wars in the theaters was was the thing and there were a lot of cool things about episode one you know darth maul liam neeson even mcgregor was great casting i think it went down in my esteem for quite a long time. I didn't like Jar Jar Binks and a lot of the special effects felt really bad. The screenwriting wasn't very good, but it's, it's kind of come back. And I think I've come to terms just with star Wars in general as you got to go with it, right? It's, it's fun. It's, it's all based off these original three movies that everybody loves. And there's been a lot of other media that's tapped into that. And some of it's good, some of it's bad, but at the end of the day, like, you know, I just enjoy it for what it is. I mean, that's that's really the thing is is that it's it's supposed to be fun. I I re- I somehow end up in a lot of conversations about Star Wars with people. I think um, I think as I I'm always I always just like ask them how they feel about the Mandalorian. I just I really love that they hired Pedro Pascal and then never show his face. Like like what a what a like baller move. You're like we're gonna hire this hot star. He's a dope actor and he's really attractive and he's got a sexy voice and then. We're, we're not going to show his face and we're not even really going to like allow you to like hear his voice because we're going to obscure it. And that's going to be the show. <laughs> and the two times that you show his face, he's got like a little rat yeah. stash. His it's hair like, is all matted. Well, what a power move. <laughs> like I got to, I applaud Disney for that, but yeah, I mean, star Wars is fun. And like, yeah, you can be like, Oh, you know, there's so many other ideas we could put out into the world, but that's not the world we live in. And so you might as well have fun with your star Wars. And I think people forget that like, we grew up in a in an era where there was no Star Wars for like 17 years. And all you had was the first three movies. So of course, the when episode one came out, it was like, hell yeah, we're gonna watch it six times, even if it sucks. I will also stand by the my assessment that episodes two and three are better than any of the JJ Abrams. Hmm, interesting. I'm probably wrong about that, but <laughs> actually last last Jedi was dope. But the other two, I didn't really. Yeah, I, I think I, I would I would agree with that. Um, you know, I think Star Wars really has taken the, on the role of like our modern mythology. And so, um, you know, it's not like anybody's going around saying, "Oh, Star Wars actually happened," right? There, no, nobody has any illusions about that. But as as far as like a shared mythology that most people know about and can talk about, and stories that we can relate to, um, you know, Star Wars has that. So many people are watching The Mandalorian. You know, they're such big event movies. 
you know, Han Solo, Luke Skywalker, Princess Leia, Chewbacca, all these are sort of etched into our, our national consciousness. That's a really good point. Cause like we grew up in an era when there was mass culture, like, like when you, when a song came out or a movie came out, like everyone knew about it because the internet wasn't really big. And, and Star Wars is like one of the only things left that is like mass culture. Well, one of what, what you're saying is interesting because one of the things I almost chose for one of my three items was uh, MTV, which now, you know, MTV, I think, is as, as irrelevant as it's ever been. But at one point, MTV was playing the hits. You know, if you wanted to know what songs were popular, you turned on MTV and they had a music video that was played, you know, a bunch of times a day. Uh and you know that that was sort of a a hub of of popular culture, and I don't know that anything now serves that role. It's it's all very distributed. I actually like really look back fondly upon just going to every every weekend going to see a big movie and having it be the same big movie. I think as a kid too, you're like, well, I want to find my people. I want to like I want to like things that are cool and like be able to relate to people and and um. And so I think that I can see why the internet helped things to fracture and like small communities to come up. But, but there was something nice about like going to see, you know, a stupid Sean Connery movie or going, everyone going to see like Stargate at the same time, you know? I, I, I know what movie you're talking about with Sean Connery too. It was that one where he was in it with Catherine Zeta-Jones and she did the whole <laughs> laser dance thing, right? I can't remember what it was called, but I, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm down for any sort of Catherine Catherine Zeta Jones content. I one, one thing that I being in quarantine, and for those who may be listening years later, this is the height of the Corona epidemic. I th- hope, <laughs> and so we're stuck at home, and uh, we have I've been able to go you know see a movie in the theater for like ten months, and I love going to the movies. And, you know, my oldest daughter is just getting to the age where I can take her to see, like, the really cool movies. Um, and I'm bummed. You know, not only can we not go see the movies, like, all the movie theaters are about to go out of business. And I don't know what that's going to look like. Maybe it'll be smaller smaller theaters that fill the void, which would be cool. But, you know, I'm going to really miss that experience. Yeah, maybe, maybe, like, Alamo Drafthouse will have an opportunity to... Um expand or I, I don't know i think i think if you live in proximity to a big city you'll always have the opportunity to see movies but yeah it makes me sad for people who live in a small town if amc goes out of business they might not have the ability to go to a movie well and you know I, I, if if coronavirus does indeed start to ebb things may start looking good i mean disney has four marvel movies slated to come out next year um and you know maybe there's this pent up demand that as soon as we can go to the movies we're going to be packing it in. Well, speaking of viruses, my last topic, Josh Hartnett. <laughs> <laughs> who 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 is the physical embodiment of the wife 2K virus? <laughs> but like Josh Hartnett, I don't know. I I was I never understood him. He he was in a movie called Black Hawk Down, which I think was nominated for a couple Academy Awards. I don't think he was. But um, I remember uh, it was one of it was one of Brahman and I's anniversaries, and we were at the video store trying to pick out a movie to rent. And I was like, "Oh, look at this! It has Hugh McGregor and Josh Hartnett in it." She's like, "Okay, let's watch it." And that movie is not a movie to watch in like a romantic occasion. It's essentially just a bunch of dirty, anonymous-looking guys like yelling, screaming, and shooting guns. 
and it, it was fine. It was a good movie, but it was not what we were looking for. <laughs> I don't have anything else to say about Josh Hartnett, but I have an alternate number three to spring on you, which I think is, is going to be more fun. The song Steal My Sunshine by the band Len or L-E-N. I don't even know what their band name is. So that song got really popular, and I heard a lot of people, including your brother Bryce, talk about how great that band was. And I don't know, maybe there was a back catalog that was like amazingly inspired or something, but the song was really basic. To, to, to use some modern terminology, I looked back at the top top forty hits from nineteen ninety nine, and um, a lot of boy bands in there, and a lot of songs that I think were spiritually related to "Steal My Sunshine." Yeah, I look back on those like you know, somewhat fondly because it, it was you know the songs. A lot of them were you know, terrible, but also like kind of enjoyable. Is there, is there a song for you that's terrible, but brings you joy at the same time? Like you just know it's bad, but you still love it. Okay. I'm going to say, uh, and I think this is from the right time period too. Tub thumping by Chumbawamba. <laughs> I mean, that, that was, I think pretty much everyone knew that was a novelty song, like right off the bat. Right. Yeah. I remember they performed at the Grammys and they literally brought like 30 people on stage. They're like, how big is this band? <laughs> what about um, Mambo number five? Were you a big Lou Bega fan? I was not a Lou Bega, Lou Bega fan, but that was definitely an earworm. I want to throw another curveball out at you. All right. I want you to. So, in the run up to this, we talked a lot about obviously 90s movies, but late 90s, early 2000s in particular. And, and we talked a lot about Brad Pitt movies. I think, mm -hmm. um, you know, Brad Pitt was a cultural force um, and you could argue still is to some extent. Um, rather than delving into any one particular Brad Pitt movie, uh, just since we're talking about the turn of the century here, I want you to, to name your top three Brad Pitt movies. Wow. Okay. Do they have to be in order? Like three, two, one or no, okay. no. And they don't have to be uh, confined to that time period. Okay. So no, no particular order. I'm going to go with oceans 11. Uh, 12 Monkeys and seven. What are your top three Brad Pitts? Oh, I don't know. I didn't really have any. I just wanted to see if you did. Okay. Okay. Well, and he's had an interesting career, right? He's a much better better actor, I think, than he gets credit for. because I think a he's a great actor. actor. Um, I also you think know, he we, has fantastic hair. Oh, yeah. Well, and he's one of those guys that, you know, he could wear whatever and still look and still look sexy as hell, right? He's just, uh, but you know, he's he's a good actor. He was in Moneyball, and uh, you know, I think his performance in Twelve Monkeys was was really good. Uh, and I think that was, a lot of that was him. I don't think that was in the script. Um, you know, he really built that role up uh, out of what wasn't supposed to be a very big big piece of the movie. So, Dave, what are we going to do next week on the podcast? Well, I like the three things format. I think we should do that again. And I'm going to propose the topic of music. And this this can be any era, any genre? Yes. Ooh, I like it. Yeah. So I'm going to be busting up in here with some Strauss. And... Uh... <laughs> you're going to be Pippin. You're going to be like, you're going to, I'm going to think you're going to go Steely Dan. Like you're going to, you're going to break right. For a layup, I'm gonna think Steely Dan, and then you're gonna you're gonna go go left and and totally surprise me. The basketball analogy does not work for this. I have learned by trying it. 
Well, I, I, I enjoy basketball when they, you know, push the, the, the ball through the, the goalposts and run the bases. Okay, Coolio. I will talk to you next week. All right, man. It was good chatting. Uh, this has been a transmission from the planet of the Meerkats. Over and out. <laughs>